0: Kidney stones have been around for centuries. In fact, the condition was first mentioned in medical texts dating back to around 3200 BC. The stones are hard deposits of minerals and salt that have crystallized inside the kidneys. However, Dr. Greg Tashin, an attending pediatric urologist at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, says while many people focus on the stones as the issue, they're really just a symptom of a
1: bigger problem. They're a disorder in the way that your body handles minerals. And when you think about it like that, you can understand that you're at risk for these recurrent, painful, episodic events. But it's also important to recognize that there are so many other factors or health consequences that come with stones, such as an increased risk of kidney damage or chronic kidney disease, heart disease, um, high blood pressure and even an increased risk of death with recurrent stones.
0: There's many factors that could cause stones. Your diet, environment, fluid intake, and more can all contribute to the crystallization. They can go unnoticed in your kidneys for years, but the painful symptoms will start if a stone breaks off and travels into the ureter, which is the tube connecting the kidneys to the bladder. That's when you'll feel the extreme pain and nausea often associated with this condition, And though kidney stones have historically affected middle-aged men, an unlikely demographic has been seeing a steady rise in cases over the last few decades.
1: Although stones affect about 11% of the people in the United States, it was once a rare, rare condition in childhood, but now is increasing. And with that, there are, number one, an increased number of children who have stones, But the evidence that's used to support decisions of how to treat those children is far weaker than it is for adults uh, because it was once a rare disease and now no longer is. So
0: while more and more children are being affected, research is still trying to catch up. Unfortunately, the tides have shifted even more drastically than just age-wise. The rise in cases has had the greatest impact on young girls, a population that's already proven to have a historical lack of research.
1: Historically, it's about three men to every one woman who would get stones. Now in younger individuals before 25 or 26, it's about 60% women or adolescent girls and 40% boys. So something has shifted really, really dramatically over a short period of time. It's not the genetics that are changing. Nothing changes in society that quickly in terms of genetic susceptibility. But I think our exposome has changed so much. All of the environmental factors to which we're exposed has changed
0: dramatically. For example, the FDA reports that most Americans consume much more sodium than the recommended daily amount, which is about one teaspoon of table salt. However, Tashin doesn't believe that it's the only factor to blame. It could help explain the overall rise in kidney stones, but not the gender bias. His research team has been focused on finding the why to this phenomenon so that they can develop new and effective treatments. The current treatment process usually starts with understanding why the patient developed stones in the first place so that they can be prevented in the future.
1: It begins with an understanding of what other medical conditions might be contributing to stones and how those might be optimized, but then it also includes simple blood tests to look for signs of incredibly rare but important to recognize genetic disorders. And the cornerstone of the evaluation for any patient with stones is a collection of the urine to look for those chemistries, those minerals in the urine that if they are out of balance, can increase the risk of stone formation.
0: The urine test is done at home, and though it's an extensive all-day process, it can provide a lot of insight into what nutrients your body isn't able to process normally. But even if every patient took this test,
1: some cases would still slip through the cracks. About 40% of children had normal urine chemistries, meaning when you do that 24-hour urine test, Everything looks fairly normal. They may have a low fluid intake. Their urine volume may be low, but there aren't any of those fundamental differences in calcium or citrate or other minerals in the urine. And that's where I think we are really focusing on understanding what else is going on upstream, perhaps, of the urine itself that could be causing these stones to form. Tashin thinks the answers could lie in the
0: patient's microbiome and digestion process. Specifically, he thinks a cause of the stones could stem from a disruption in the gut microbiome.
1: We know that children who have taken antibiotics are at increased risk of stone formation and that these individuals, especially earlier in life, have this disruption of the gut microbiome and that may affect how one handles the nutrients either taken in through diet or as part of your normal, what we call the gut-kidney access, that connection between the gut and the kidney and then how that could impact the risk of stones forming.
0: And though antibiotics are great at fighting off infections, research has shown that they can disturb the gut microbiome for six months to a year. The balance of microbes inside your gut is essential for maintaining your health, so the imbalance that antibiotics create could increase the risk of developing kidney
1: stones. I'm not saying in any way that it's the antibiotics alone, but that could be one factor that we're seeing more commonly now than 30 years ago. We know that overall in the United States, the groups of individuals who are exposed to antibiotics the most and especially unnecessarily or inappropriately are children and and women. That may be completely ecological fallacy that, you know, we're seeing trends going in the same direction they're not causal, but it does cause at least one to pause and consider what could be contributing to this. While we wait
0: for research to unravel these mysteries, Tashin still has to treat his adolescent patients who are currently being affected. He says surgery is the typical treatment option. However, that approach may change when the patient is a child.
1: For example, some of the surgeries that are performed for stones are more challenging to perform in small children because of the size of the ureter. So what might be one procedure for an adult could be up to three for a child. And that means three anesthetics, um, the discomfort of surgery three times, the risks of radiation. So all of those are are factors in the decision-making that would vary from a child compared to an adult. But once the stones
0: are removed, prevention methods, like dietary and lifestyle changes, become the main focus. The challenge is that each new patient requires a different approach.
1: I really consider this like a puzzle. So each bit of information is a piece of the puzzle. And one of the key pieces is what is the stone made out of? What's the composition? The other pieces are what do the lab tests show? What do the urine studies show? What are the genetics? And then as you put these pieces together, a picture emerges. And that picture will be different for every patient, for every child. And then it's tailoring the treatment based on that individual risk and really what those priorities are from the patient. Some families will choose to limit
0: or avoid medication altogether because of the potential long-term effects and solely focus on dietary management. Other families will rely on medication for a short time period to focus on preventing new stones from forming. Hopefully, these families will one day have the novel treatments that Tashin's group and many others are working on today.
1: Ideally, we want to be able to develop a probiotic that you can take this yogurt, and that would restore that healthy balance in your gut and decrease, your stone formation. That's the holy grail. It's going to take a long time to get there, but with our patients participating in our research and that partnership, I think that's a goal that we can achieve. You can find more information about Dr. Greg Tashin
0: and all of our guests on our website, RadioHealthJournal.org. For more behind the scenes, follow Radio Health Journal on Facebook, Instagram, and X. Our writer-producer is Kristen Farah. Our production manager is Jason Dickey. I'm Greg Johnson.
1: Hey, it's your girl, Lonnie Love, and this segment is brought to you by Metamucil. Are you ready to take charge of your digestive health? I know I am. That's why I'm teaming up with Metamucil for the two-week challenge. Metamucil's 4-in-1 fiber helps promote regularity. Unlike many fibers, Metamucil's psyllium fiber gels to trap and remove waste from your digestive system, helping you feel lighter and more energetic. After just two weeks, try the Metamucil two-week challenge today. Learn more at metamucil.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease.
0: Coming up next week on Radio Health Journal.
1: One of the veterans, he's been able to go to the grocery stores, get in a car now. He really looked us in the eye and said his life was in a really bad place. This dog changed his life.
0: Why service dogs are an invaluable resource. But first, why many kids and adults have a backwards view of nutrition.
1: My introduction to food wasn't like a healthy introduction. It was basically eat what's there and eat to survive.
0: All that and more on Radio Health Journal. I'm Elizabeth Westfield, host of Radio Health Journal. If you enjoy listening to Radio Health Journal, you'll also like our sister show, Viewpoints, which covers a wide array of topics from education to history to the environment. Here's a preview of what they're covering this week on Viewpoints. You work hard, you get your down payment, you have an income, you can get a house. As of 2022, that changed, especially into 2023. And now we're here in 2024.
1: For many people, buying a home feels impossible right now.
0: Then... Many astronauts from the 1960s who worked on the early space shuttle program actually made public statements to the effect that this is not a safe vehicle and people should not be flying it.
1: The truth about America's retired space shuttle program. I'm Marty Peterson. And I'm Gary Price. These stories in-depth this week on your public affairs magazine, Viewpoints.
0: Thank you for joining us this week and every week as we break down the science stories you need to know. You can find all of our past segments and guests on our website, radiohealthjournal.org, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and X for daily content. And tune in next week for another edition of Radio Health Journal.